So last week we read that Jesus and his disciples entered into Jerusalem and how that entrance was very bittersweet. For months we've been building up to this final week of the life of Jesus. It is sometimes called the Passion of Jesus. The crowds were eager to welcome him in as he and the 12 disciples came to Jerusalem. There was a great jubilation at his arrival. They were celebrating. They even ceremonially acknowledged Jesus as king and called for him to claim the throne of his forefather David. In doing so, they're they're at least outwardly acknowledging that he is the Messiah that God has promised to send to Israel. But Jesus knew their rejoicing was in many ways superficial because the Israelites wanted Jesus to fulfill their will, but he was determined to fulfill the will of the Father. They wanted a Savior who would conquer Rome who would come and tear them free from the control that the Roman Empire had brought to that area of Palestine, which they saw as their inheritance. But Jesus had his sights set on conquering sin. The objectives that he wanted to complete were much grander than the objectives of the people that waved the palm fronds and put their coats down on the ground and shouted Hosanna to him as he entered into the city of David. Shortly after entering the city, Jesus heads to the temple. And the temple is going to become a sort of hub around which Jesus' final week of ministry is going to rotate. He was not a stranger to this important place of worship. If you can think all the way back to our beginning of the Gospel of Luke, as we've been studying for now a couple of years in the book of Luke, back in chapter 2, verse 41, it says, Now his parents, meaning Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph, went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to to their their custom. So so Jesus had come to the temple many times before. Nazareth wasn't so far away that they couldn't make that trip. And because he grew up in a family that worshipped the Lord God, they desired to pay attention to these festival dates that God had prescribed for Israel so that they could worship the Lord in the ways that he desired to be worshipped. That's something that we as a church are always trying to be committed to, that we want to worship God His way. We don't want to reinvent church and make it something new and innovative if it in any way takes us away from what God has always called us to do as his church. You don't want to give God a gift that you like, but he doesn't. You want to give God what he desires. And he has told us in his scripture how he desires to be worshipped. And so we desire to give him that gift that he wants. Jesus, likewise, grew up as a Jewish man. And so he desired to give God, what God wanted of Israel. And so he would participate in these Jewish uh, festivals and activities. He was no temple newbie. He was was aware of what the temple was like. He had been there at Passover several times before, so it wasn't a novelty to him. He was familiar with it. And at first glance, as he enters into this temple courtyard, what he does is going to seem a little out of character for the Jesus that we know and love. And yet we're going to see that it was absolutely appropriate and essential to the unfolding of God's will in Jesus' life. And there's a lot that we can learn from what he does in his first moments entering into the temple. So we're looking at Luke chapter 19 right now, and we are going to be studying today verses 45 through 48. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written... My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging 
on his words. This is one of the very rare times in Scripture when Jesus, who is God in the flesh, Emmanuel, allows us to observe a small taste of his righteous anger towards sin. What he sees when he enters the house of God is so upsetting to him that he does something that must have seemed to his 12 disciples to be extremely risky. He had already revealed to them that he was going to Jerusalem to die. And so when they heard him speak out a rebuke against the people who filled the courtyard of the temple, they must have thought, oh no, what is going to happen? What, what are the people who are in charge are going to do when they see Jesus making this bold move. He expressed not only his anger, but also his authority by forcefully removing the vendors from the outer courts of the temple and and causing them to leave and stop their practice of selling these goods. How does the Prince of Peace, the one who is so patient and loving and kind, become suddenly so hostile and in the house of the Lord? It begins not with anger, but with sorrow. We read last week, in Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 44, just after they had given them this great reception and they had called him king and shouted hosannas to his name, that Jesus entered in the city in verse 41, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. And so we spoke at length last week about how Jesus expressed a great sense of grief for the hearts of the Israelites, his countrymen, who refused to trust that he was the anticipated Messiah. Outwardly, it seemed like they were acknowledging him. Outwardly, it seemed like they were on board. They shouted hosannas to his name, but Jesus saw right through the exterior and looked at the heart. And he realized that many of these same people would be shouting crucify him in just a few days. Many of these who were outwardly willing to say, this man is of God, did not put their life in his hands. They did not trust him the way they were called to trust Messiah. And so he experiences this this grief and this brokenheartedness, especially since these people have had such advantages over others. They've been given the law and the prophets. They could read for themselves from their scripture that Jesus was indeed the one. Over the course of their history and then recently in his miraculous ministry, they've seen signs They they have ancestors that have borne testimony that God parted the Red Sea for them, that he stilled the waters of the Jordan so that they could walk through into a place of promise. Story after story of battles that they had fought as untrained men against legions of of vicious fighters, and yet they won, though they had no, no, no business winning. Why? Because God had made it happen. They should trust this God, and yet here again you see the roots of unfaithfulness in people. And Jesus sees that in Jerusalem. He sees it in the Israelites and he is heart, his heart is broken because of this. He wants his people to know the true joy of the Lord and yet they don't really trust. So there's this great sense of grief and sorrow that Jesus experiences and it's spurred on by their rebelliousness. It's spurred on by their sin. Jesus knows that those who won't repent will experience the judgment of the God who they claim is theirs. Their sin is going to condemn them. And without the intervention of the Savior that God has sent for them, their sin is going to be their doom. And so he weeps. And at some point, sorrow for the devastating effects of sin begin to turn to anger. 
as Jesus begins to see the terrible impact that sin is making in the ones that he loves so much. Have you ever experienced that transition for yourself? You know somebody, you care for somebody, and then you see them caught up in temptation and sin begins to work its ugly way into their lives and then the terrible and inevitable consequences begin to radically affect them. For example, you might, you might have been heartbroken to find out that a married couple you loved are beginning to be torn apart by the effects of adultery. At first, you're saddened by this, right? You're saddened that this has happened. You're saddened that years of commitment and covenantal love are being put into jeopardy by the sting of unfaithfulness. And you have anxiety as you think about how that's going to affect possibly their children. If mom and dad can't work this out, how is it going to affect their little ones? You're devastated that this temptation has worked its way in between two people who you trust that they love the Lord. You, you, you believe in your heart of hearts that they want to do what is right. But now they're contending with betrayal and a loss of trust and love. And your heart is saddened by these things. But eventually, there's likely to be a progression whereby you see the fallout of sin in their lives and your sense for what is right and for what honors God might lead you to feel something more than sadness. You may begin to feel angry. Angry that the enemy hates marriage and is working hard to tear apart the covenantal arrangement through which God receives so much glory. Angry that your friend was willing to let their guard down and take their eyes off the Savior for long enough to do such damage to their marriage covenant. Angry at the third party who was selfishly willing to work them way, their way in between two people who loved each other and were committed to one another. And angry at the sin that is threatening to destroy something that is so beautiful. This is a proper transition from sadness to anger that we sometimes feel when we see sin at work in the lives of those whom we love. That we wish we could do something and, and, and eradicate their sin. We begin to feel angry towards their mistake, towards this willingness to give in to temptation. The shift from sorrow to sadness, from sorrow and sadness to righteous anger happens as Jesus enters into the temple courts. Now, the temple in Jerusalem was surrounded by a pretty substantial wall that formed a large courtyard, which was about three and a half football fields in length. And this wall had several large openings, several gates into which people might enter. Now, the holy temple, you see it in the center there, is set apart by another set of walls. And there are only one or two entrances into this particular temple. Access to the temple proper was very limited. The primary courtyard was called the Courtyard of the Gentiles, which might seem like a strange name, but it was called that because Gentile believers who wanted to honor God were allowed to enter into this first courtyard where they could pray, they could listen to teachings about the Lord God, sometimes they could sing to God, they could participate in some of the festivities that happened during festival weeks. <clears throat> But these Gentiles were not allowed to go beyond that first major courtyard. And you see that courtyard on both sides of the temple. Now, there was another courtyard inside of the temple called the, the Courtyard of Women. And into that courtyard, Jewish men and women could come and offer praises and sing glory to the Lord God. But Gentile believers were not allowed in there. In fact, if you read Acts 24, you find that the Sanhedrin brought a great charge against Paul because they accused him of allowing Gentiles into that inner courtyard. So the Gentiles who believed in Yahweh, 
but we were not from Jewish families, could only come into that order, outer courtyard. There were very specific requirements for those who wanted to come and bring sacrifices to the Lord God. The types of animals they could bring and offer were laid out in Leviticus and in Numbers. Their, their quality was, was very important to the process. You could not bring an animal that had a defect, was born lame, or had gotten injured. You couldn't bring an old animal that was about to die anyway. You had to bring a young animal, an animal that had a lot of vitality, that was flawless as far as defects go. Certain types of animals were arranged for certain types of offerings, whether it be for sacrifice of sin atonement or for the gratitude of thanksgiving, the things that God had done for you. Now, there were logistic complications for those who traveled a far distance to come into Jerusalem to enter into the temple and give sacrifices. It was not easy for them to carry their animals along with them often. You wouldn't want to lug an ox, you know, tens of miles if you lived far away from Jerusalem. It was often more practical to just bring some money with you to the, the, the temple of God and then to buy an animal while you were there so you didn't have to worry about that animal getting hurt on the way or getting stolen or losing that animal. And many people realized this need and an industry was birthed whereby travelers who needed to buy animals for sacrifice could go to these temple salesmen and they could buy their qualified animals there but it was going to cost them a premium to get their animals there at the courtyard. Do you know what costs a 50-cent bag of M&M's? What causes it to cost magically $4 when you go to the movie theater and buy it in their lobby? It's the same kind of thing that caused these animals to go for two and three times their value because the people who had traveled a far distance were not familiar with Jerusalem. It wasn't their hometown. They didn't know where they could go to get a better deal. They didn't know if they went somewhere else if their animal would qualify for sacrifice. So often they were gouged and charged more than they should have been, and the people who were selling those animals in the temple courtyard became rich off of these people who had come for very noble and godly reasons to offer sacrifice to God. There was also only one kind of money that was acceptable in the temple, even though there was many different kinds of currencies in the broad spectrum of Rome and the empire. And so those who came from a long distance had to then exchange their money. And you could do that in the temple for a fee. So the money changers were getting rich as well. I want you to imagine the sheer volume of sacrifices that had to take place during this particular holy week. Remember, there are people traveling in from all over the empire, Jewish people who are there for the Passover, the most important holiday of the year. According to the historian Josephus, who lived just after the time of Jesus, in 66 AD, which is the year they finally completed the construction on the temple, it seems like they're always building the temple, they finally completed it in 66, 255,600 lambs were sacrificed at Passover just that one year. So you can imagine with that huge volume of sacrifices being offered to the Lord, that somebody's going to come along and say, wow, there's a great opportunity for me to get rich off of this. One week of work and I could be set for a year. I could be set for the rest of the year. Commerce, and it wasn't just the inappropriate commerce, but just commerce itself had so filled the courtyards of the temple that holy activities were pressed out. There was no room for prayer. There was no room to do the holy things that people came to the temple to try to do because there were all these shops. This is not what the temple was ever meant to be. 
And so as Jesus enters in his father's house and he sees endless rows of tables and lines of people waiting to just get ripped off at these tables so that they can honor the Lord their God, a zeal for his father's house and a respect for what is supposed to be holy comes upon Jesus. And he's not going to be quiet about this. And so again, in verse 45, he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer. And you have made it a den of robbers. The other Gospels record this event as well. But they paint the scene with a lot more detail than Luke does. Luke just gives us the very bare essentials. It's a very pared down representation. And one of the essentials that he decides to leave into his very short account is the fact that there is great emphasis put on prayer here. Don't miss this. Christ's emphasis on the temple is that it is a place for prayer. Friends, prayer is such an essential aspect of our relationship with God. And the temple was meant to be a place where people could gather together to seek the Lord and to interact with their God. Not just a place where you could hear the endless bleeding of sheep and and the endless sound of people from all over shuffling around trying to buy things. It was supposed to be a, a peaceful place of prayer. Prayer is not, by the way, just a transitional element of our worship services. We don't just pray so everyone will close their eyes and the band can magically get on stage. We don't just pray because that's just a nice, concise way to stop the service. We don't just pray right before we eat just because it's like the beginning of the meal and now everyone can take their first bite. We pray because God, who created all things, is listening to us. By the blood of Jesus Christ, He has washed clean filthy sinners like us so that we are no longer detestable to him. And not only did he do that for our benefit, but he wants us to come near to him. He wants to hear about our hearts and what we love and what we care about. He wants to experience relationship with us. Now, I I admit there are some major differences between the Old Testament temple worship under the covenant of the law and the New Testament worship under the covenant of grace. But prayer is undeniably, fundamentally vital to both. Look at these passages of Scripture here. The first one, I I got the reference wrong. I put Ephesians 4.6. You can scratch out it. It's Philippians 4.6. It says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. How, How much should prayer affect what we do? It should be about everything in our lives. I've heard so many people say, well, I've got this thing going on, but it's too small for me to pray about it to God. You think anything's too small for God? That's almost the same thing as saying something's too big for God. God wants to hear what's going on in your heart. He's not going to be overburdened if you pray about the small things that matter to you. We are to lift up everything to the Lord our God in prayer and supplication. And as we do that, we, made our, we make our requests known to God. It also reminds us that we are a needy people. It prevents us from getting into the false mindset that we don't need God most of the time because we can just handle it on our own. When we are constantly praying to the Lord and acknowledging that we need His wisdom, acknowledging that we need the Holy Spirit to fill us, acknowledging that if we don't refer to His wisdom that we're going to get it wrong, then we tend to drift away from His leadership. God's not just a God of emergency. So many people treat him that way that the only time they really pray is when things fall off the rails and they feel they can't handle it themselves. But we are called to be a people of continual prayer. Look at at Colossians 4.2. Continue steadfastly in prayer. 
being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Those who don't pray regularly are going to find that their affection for God begins to dwindle. God is a spiritual being. And so we can't just look upon him and appreciate his material existence. We have to interact with him in a spiritual way or else we tend to forget that he's even near to us. And so those who do not pray throughout the day for the things that they need for God or give thanks to him throughout the, need, the day for their needs, <clears throat> they're going to forget that he's constantly providing. They're going to forget and they're not going to notice that every day what you need, God is giving to you. And when you're not thinking about the fact that everything is his provision, that the car you're driving is thanks to his grace, that the relationships you have are thanks to his grace, that your health is thanks to his grace, then you tend to take for granted the, the important critical role he plays in your every moment. Acts 2.42 says, And they, the early church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. You see, the, the early church, I think, understood this a bit more than we do, that there is great need for regular and consistent prayer. And so God wants his house to be a house of prayer. Now I'm about to say something that might upset some of you. Do not deceive yourself into believing that you can live a life that is glorifying to God without prayer. You cannot do it. A statement like that might shock you, but it's true. If you're not seeking God in prayer, you're ignoring Him regardless of whatever activities you have going on. And they might look very Christian on the outside. They might look very religious on the surface. But if you're not seeking God in prayer, then what are you doing? He desires relationship with you. And if you are not speaking with this God, then he will remain to you like a stranger. God intended the temple to be a house of prayer. And for whom did he intend that house to be for? For all people. He was, in fact, quoting a passage of Scripture from the Old Testament. He was quoting from Isaiah chapter 56. Let me read this to you today. Starting in verse 6, it says, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord. Who are these foreigners? See, the Israelites have been God's chosen people. But even when he established Israel as his nation, he desired for their holiness, their different type of life to stand out amongst the Gentiles, amongst the unbelievers, so that some of them might see that and realize the power of God and His uniqueness and holiness and that some might come to believe in Him. So it's talking here about foreigners who are not Jewish by birth. They don't have Israelite DNA, but they have submitted their hearts to the same God that Israel worships. And so he says in verse 6, And the foreigners should join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord and to be His servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain. What's the holy mountain? The Mount of Olives. Mount Olivet, upon which the temple is built. And I'll make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be a called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcast of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides these who are already gathered. 
Do you see the weight that this passage in Isaiah carries as Jesus is about to give his life on the cross? And in doing so, he is not only providing a means of salvation for Israel, he's providing a means of salvation for any human being who would believe that gospel message and put their faith and hope in Jesus Christ. The temple and its surrounding courtyards were not accessible to everyone. The sanctuary itself was largely off-limits except to the Levites who were consecrated to offer sacrifices there. And so the court of the Gentiles was an important place for anyone who was not Jewish but wanted to worship Yahweh. That was the only place they could go. And so as they walk into this courtyard that is supposed to be a place of prayer, a holy place, they walk into this congested area with money changers and salesmen hawking their wares. Jesus is angry that the people of Israel have turned God's house into a marketplace and have loved the opportunity to make money and turn a profit more than they loved, giving these Gentile believers a chance to come and worship alongside them. By overturning the tables of the salespeople and dumping out their money bags and driving them out of his courtyard, Jesus is declaring, let this be a house of prayer once again. There was historical precedence for what he did that day. About 700 years earlier, King Hezekiah of Israel took the throne from his father Ahaz. Ahaz had been a selfish and wicked man. His eyes were not on the Lord God. He wanted to make himself powerful and rich, and he largely ignored spiritual things. And so when Hezekiah came along, he was different than his dad. He had not desired to follow in Ahaz's footsteps, and so he wanted reform. And the first thing he did was go into the temple and take stock of what was happening. And lo and behold, this holy temple built on the Mount of Olives was being used as a public storage unit for the nation of Israel. They had cluttered it with junk. Things that people wanted to store, they brought up and they would store in the, in, in the, within the courtyard of, of the temple. And he was, he was abhorred by this. And so Hezekiah calls, and you can read about this in 2 Chronicles 29. Hezekiah calls his people to him from every tribe and says, we must consecrate ourselves. We have to seek God in prayer. We must repent. We must offer sacrifice. And then we've got to together go into God's temple and clean it from the top to the bottom. And they took eight days to absolutely rid the temple of every article that did not belong there. They cleaned it. They made it holy again. They tried with all their might to undo the wickedness that Ahaz had done to the place of God. By the way, by the time we see Jesus arriving at Holy Week, there is at least a second time that Jesus has cleansed the temple of, of this kind of cancer sin already. You might have noticed this. If you start reading John, the gospel that comes after Matthew, Mark, and Luke, very early in chapter 2, in fact, Jesus enters into the temple way before he gives his life on the cross and he cleanses out the temple there. Let me read for you verses 13 through 22. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and with the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. 
His disciples remembered that. It was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So his disciples identified what Jesus was doing because there was a messianic prophecy that said that zeal for his father's house would make this chosen one angry with sin. It would consume him. And so they identified that. Now, there were some textual critics who, who want to argue and say that, well, that's not a different circumstance. In fact, John just got it wrong and put it at the beginning of his gospel. He just misordered it. But that's not necessarily the case. If you look at the details, there's a lot of little differences in that cleansing of the temple than there are in the later ones. In John's account, he took the time to go make a, like basically a whip out of willow branches so that he could come in and drive them out physically with this whip. We see that he pours out the coins of these vendors in the courtyard in the John account, but you don't get that in Luke's account. He overturned their tables. Now, robbery is not explicitly in view here. Rather, the buying and selling itself of goods that has made the temple courtyard like a marketplace. It has just congested everything that's supposed to be holy. And in the verse right after these verses, Jesus goes on uh, to, to be challenged by the keepers of the temple. The scribes and the high priests come to him and they demand to know by what authority he does these things. John's chapter has that. The other accounts don't. And he goes on to say, well, listen, if you tear down this temple, I'll build it up in three days again. And everyone's completely confused by it. Nobody knows what he's talking about. Now, if that happened right before he went to go give himself on the cross, after he's really prepped his guys, don't you think his disciples would have known what he was talking about there? See, that was an earlier event. And so twice we see Jesus filled with anger, righteous anger, cleansing the temple. And it, it only took him a year or two to, to get back to right what they were doing before, setting up shop again, and here he cleanses it out again. Friends, there will be, until the return of our king, the need to periodically cleanse ourselves of corruption, that we, have been allowed, that we have allowed to make a home in our hearts into places that ought to be holy. God is a holy God. He's not going to put up for the pollution of greed and sin and wickedness. And if we are to be his people, then we too are to be holy like our God. And so we've got to be on the lookout when things that don't belong creep in like they have done in the temple area here. Jesus is keeping a lookout for things that are unholy, invading things that are holy. This might have to do with the place that we worship the Lord God. It might have to do with our very own hearts. In November, we're going to take a break from Luke. It'll be our final break from this book until we finish it up in spring. And in November, we're going to be celebrating the 500-year anniversary of the Reformation of the Church. And we're going to experience uh, the history of some men that made a really big difference in coming into the church that had been so polluted by secular ideas and patterns that a radical change had to occur. And we're going to see how men of faith and men of courage we're willing to confront these, these corruptions within the church and say, listen, we can't do what men say we should do and ignore the scripture. True worship is defined by the word of God. So we must be careful not to let anything corrupt the holiness of our worship of Yahweh. These are matters to be seriously taken. In fact, your leadership, our elders, we've prayed over whether it's okay or not to sell church t-shirts in the courtyard because we don't want the courtyard of even our church building to become a place of commerce. You know, we prayed about that and we decided it wasn't, wasn't a big deal because we're not gouging anybody. We're not trying to turn a big profit here. We're just trying to give people a chance to show that they are connected to this church and maybe invite people to church. But we take these things seriously 
because we don't want this place to be corrupted by secular ideas. For those who have a difficult time of reconciling the actions that we read about in in Luke 19 here with the loving, merciful, patient Jesus that they have come to adore, then maybe this passage of Scripture teaches us grace and justice are not mutually exclusive concepts. Jesus does not have to choose between one or another. Jesus doesn't have to say, well, I'm going to be a God of grace and mercy and so no one gets punished and it's just a great big kumbaya. We're going to pull everybody together and we're going to overlook our differences and we'll all be one. Jesus doesn't have to say, well, you know, at the expense of love and compassion, we're just going to focus on judgment and everyone who does wrong will be excluded and we're just going to cast you out if you don't fit the mold. Instead, we see a Jesus who is at once both of these things, at once very humble and gentle and yet still powerful and brave, a man who is loving and yet unwavering in his determination to stand up against sin and wickedness. He is the embodiment of both those things that to us seem like polar opposites. And you might say, well, yeah, he's Jesus, right? He's God in the flesh, so he can pull that off. If he's angry, it's for a good reason. But what about you and me? What about when it comes to human beings that often make mistakes in judgment? What about human beings that get carried away with their emotions? Is it ever acceptable for us to express godly anger? Friends, I can get angry at the silliest things. I mean, I I, I remember a couple months ago, we woke up and I came down into the kitchen and there was a trail of ants in the kitchen. And I noticed they, they had gotten through a window and they were up on the plates and they were everywhere. And I was so mad. I was so angry. You know, like, why did God even create these little devils, you know, to come in here and pollute my home? And I felt violated. We're talking about ants here. You know, no major deal. They didn't bite me. They didn't get me sick. We just cleaned them up. And it was, you know, called out Tim Roberson and everything's okay. All right? But I got so mad at that. And I can let myself get so mad. A guy tries to get in my lane without turning on his blinker. What? Disrespect, right? Don't you acknowledge me? I'm going to drive away and not even remember that in in 20 seconds. But I get so worked up over the littlest thing. How can I trust myself to ever be righteously angry? In light of that weakness, are people ever justified in expressing a godly kind of anger? The answer is yes, but we have to be extremely careful. And we have to know our hearts And we have to be willing to let the Holy Spirit control our hearts so that we don't take something that is good and twist it and make it something bad. Here are some things that you might want to consider before you expressing what you think is godly anger. First of all, what is my motivation? What is my motivation? We see the motivation that Jesus has here expressed clearly in the Gospel of John, right? Zeal for my Father's house has consumed me. Jesus cared about his father's house. Because he had such respect for the things of God, because they were so important to him, he could not stand by and let this injustice continue. He could not stand by and allow this stain to exist on the holy temple of God. He had to do something about it. It wasn't about his personal glory or about him making a name for himself. It was not about him making somebody else look bad so that he could look good. It was about God and about God's holiness. You know, standard indignation is often 
motivated selfishly, isn't it? And then we call it righteous indignation so we don't have to feel bad about our anger. We get angry about something that really only matters to us and not to God, and then we say that it's a righteous anger. Let's be really careful, friends, to never attach the name of God to our own personal little battle that we're fighting so that we can feel justified in it. The last couple of weeks, we've seen an example of this despicable activity happening. As some of the true sinfulness of our nation is being exposed, we have these these displays of violence and hatred in South Carolina's Charlottesville. And I've seen people interviewed who adamantly insist that white people are better than other people just because of their bloodline. And then some of them go so far as to say that God enforces this idea or that they're somehow justified by believing this from the scripture. Can you in any way imagine justifying that kind of racist behavior in light of Isaiah 56 that we read earlier? where God is calling all peoples of all nations not just to be saved, but to be in his house. That he's going to call them to come near and to worship in his temple. And then people have the gall to say that that God endorses racism. It's despicable. For the record, there is no room for that kind of discrimination in the house of God. All men and women are made in the image of God, and so they have equal value for that purpose and for that reason. So we must consider our motivations, friends. Secondly, consider, is this expression of anger legitimately loving? And you say, no, it's not loving, it's anger. Anger and love are absolutely different, and that's not necessarily the case here. Anger can be loving at times, and it might seem like a contradiction. But as we discussed earlier, anger is sometimes rooted in a love for holiness and in a love for a person that is acting in an unholy way to their own demise. Love is not expressed primarily in anger. You know, that's very clear in Scripture. We read passages like Galatians 4, 22 through 24, that talks to us about the fruit of the Spirit. It says that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. These are things against which there is no law. So you can do that stuff as much as you want and you're never going to get in trouble for it. Okay? So we are to be a people of love and gentleness and self-control and peace. These are good, good things. But it is that very love and that desire for peace and unity with God, that desire for holiness, that caused Jesus to get angry in the first place. He desired to have these people that he loved rid of the wickedness that was corrupting their relationship with God. Remember, Scripture says, a violent man, one who is quick to strike out, has no business being an elder in your church. Somebody who is, who is quick to fight and to, 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 to beat somebody down has no business leading you. Also, we see in James where it says that we should be slow to wrath, slow to speak, but quick to listen. All right? So the scripture makes it very clear that we should not be defined by violence, that anger should not be the, the primary thing that you see from a Christian. But we must understand here that there is a loving kind of anger, uh, an anger that will not settle for someone destroying themselves and defaming God. So is your anger motivated by love or is it motivated by something lower than love? Thirdly, Consider, does this expression of anger have the potential to do good to the one who's receiving your expression of anger? 
as a child, I had certain lessons that I didn't forget. And some of those ones that stuck the closest to my heart were messages de delivered with a tinge of anger. Uh, I went through a period of time when I was a teenager when I forgot everything I didn't care about and remembered everything that was important to me. And so my parents began to get very frustrated that I would forget to do the chores they told me to do, that I would forget to meet them at certain places at certain times. They had to drive me everywhere because I was late to get my license. And so there were times when I was supposed to get picked up and then I just wouldn't show up. And one time too many, I did that to my parents. And I was supposed to get picked up in front of school, after school, because I had an orthodontist appointment that my parents had graciously rescheduled for me because I had forgotten the last one. And they were going to take me there so I didn't miss it. And I walked home completely, completely spaced on it. And I'm walking along the road and my stepmother drives up in the car and she rolls the window down and says, what are you doing? And I said, I'm on my way home. She says, you're supposed to meet me out in front of the school. And I said, oh, I totally forgot. And I got in the car and she didn't scream and yell at me. She didn't take off her shoe and hit me with it, okay? She didn't do anything like that. But she was bubbling with anger. And she said this to me, your father and I are very disappointed in the lack of responsibility that you have been showing lately. We expect more from you, Nick. And those are the only words that were spoken on the whole ride home. And I won't forget them because somebody that I loved showed me their anger. And I realized by that expression of anger that was controlled, but was, it was razor sharp, I experienced from that expression of anger that what I was taking lightly needed to be taken seriously. And it affected me. It stayed with me. I thought about that for weeks afterwards. And I even remember it vividly today. And I'm grateful for that admonition because I started to become more determined to be a man who was responsible and had, who had integrity, who was where he said he was going to be and determined to do the things that he said he was going to do. So sometimes an expression of righteous anger can do someone a lot of good. If doing good to that person is not very likely, a result of this expression of anger that you want to express, then you probably want to skip it. But if it's going to benefit that person in some way, there's a good chance it could help them, then it might be the right time for you to give it to them in, in a controlled manner. Number four, consider this. Does this expression of godly anger nullify a greater good that might otherwise be displayed to that person. There are times when you might want to react in anger, but the greater lesson will be given to that person if instead you react in forgiveness or patience or peacefulness. I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where there's this interesting little section of scripture which addresses something that was going on in Corinth. Paul is criticizing them because they are so divided over some issues that some of them are taking each other to court. They're taking one another to secular court and suing one another with Roman people deciding what happens in the church. And Paul is, he is heartbroken over this. He says, how could you do this? Wouldn't you rather be defrauded than go before a secular judge and show them that the church doesn't have their act together? Like, what is a greater evil for you to lose out on something somebody defrauded you of or maybe have something stolen from you or unrightfully provided a, a, a good that was, that was sub-quality? Wouldn't you rather just take that and keep the glory of God than react in anger and sue them and see the name of God slandered? 
So there are times when the more powerful expression of your godly anger might be shown by simply giving grace to someone or loving them even though they don't deserve it, have not earned your love. Fourthly, are you willing to consider the consequences of your actions and take whatever consequences come from such a display of righteous anger? When you stand for what is right and you speak with a loud, authoritative voice into this world that does not honor God and does not love Him, do you think people are going to receive that gently? They will not. This church uh, is united in our desire to see abortion done away with in our country. There's so much hurt done from families that give up life like this. God values life in every form. And so we stand against abortion. And there are brothers and sisters who at times have gone onto the sidewalks in front of abortion clinics hoping to give out tracts, hoping to share the peace and love of God with those who are in a hopeless situation in their eyes, who, who feel like they have no options. And sometimes those confrontations become very heated. And there have been Christians who peacefully protested but were arrested anyway and thrown into jail and suffered legal consequences because they said what was right. And yet they've got to be willing to take that if that is what God allows to happen. Are they willing to go to prison if that's what it takes to speak the word of God? And each one of us is going to have to decide if it's worth it to us. Because the more you stand for Christ in an overtly holy way, the more this world will hate you. Scripture says very clearly in Matthew chapter 5, the world hated me first, says Jesus. So it's going to hate you because you love me. So we need to weigh those consequences of our godly, righteous anger before we're willing to express it. Now, the shocking nature of what Jesus did when he cleared the temple has the potential to overshadow a very important bit of information that Luke provides for us in telling us what Jesus did right after that. Look at verse 47. Right after he pulls these men out of the temple, right after he declares their work unholy, right after he admonishes them publicly, verse 47, and he was teaching in the temple daily. You might expect him to get out of Dodge, you know, to make his spiel, to say his piece, and then to take off before, you know, the, the authorities get there, before the, the, the high priests and the scribes could show up and try to wrangle with him. But he doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't just make his loud, righteous stand and then take off. He continues to do what? To teach in the temple. He was not ashamed of this righteous anger. He was not ashamed of what he had said to these men because it was true. But he also wanted to make sure that they understood it. So he stuck around and he continued to teach them why he was angry, why their sin was separating them from God, how they could be saved in him. He taught them because he loved them. So many times you see people who are, think they're expressing righteous indignation, but they don't really care to see that person they're expressing righteous anger to actually reformed. They don't want to help them. They just want to hurt them with their expression of anger. Mothers and fathers, we've got to be very careful that we listen to the pattern of Jesus here. When we rebuke our child, sometimes it is necessary to show them anger. But we must do that coupled with good teaching. They've got to see why we are upset at their sin. They've got to see why we are so adamant about these rules that we have given to them because we desire holiness for them and we want them to be near to God. And these activities they've gotten involved in, they shouldn't just be punished for them because they're not being 
super Christians and not doing the right thing, but they should be punished so that they would learn what God loves and, and desire to be near to God. And that's not going to happen unless you explain it to them, unless you sit down with them and teach them face to face, unless they can see not just your anger, but also your compassion at their weakness and their inability to do what is right. Jesus does this. Righteous indignation should not be the end. It should be a means to an end if it is necessary at all. A proclamation of truth that hopefully changes hearts. Now, some of you might be saying, wow, these five bullet points are great, Pastor Nick. But nobody experiences anger like that. You can't control how you feel. That's why it's called a feeling. I'm not going to sit and say, oh, I'm starting to feel angry. I'm going to take out my list and go down this list and make sure that I check and balance everything before I express my emotions. That's not how human beings work. And of course it's not how human beings work. And of course you can't keep your emotions in check if you don't have the Holy Spirit. Friends, God has given us such a powerful tool, such an incredible resource. He calls it his helper that he's going to send to us. Why? Because we're weak. Because there are so many things that are godly that we can't do without God. In fact, he calls us spiritually dead before we trust in Jesus Christ. But once we trust in Jesus, what does he call us? Alive in him and able to bear good fruit. So there might be a pattern of, of no patience in you when it comes to your emotions, that if you feel something, you're going to act on it. Recognize that that's of the flesh. And if you are Christ's now, you have been called to something higher, that God has given you the tools to experience those feelings and to process them through the lens of, I want to worship God with my life. Process them through the goal of glorifying Him with every response, that we won't just become a reactive people, but that we will actively desire to worship the Lord with every thought, with every word, with every deed. Jesus' actions were justified because the Father was being disrespected by this materialistic distraction. By boldly standing for the truth in a vivid and confrontational way, Jesus was revealing the shameful nature of their practices and also the neglect of those who should have been taking care of the temple all along. He points out the failure of these high priests that should have never allowed this in the first place. By condemning the practice, Jesus is in essence condemning those leaders of the temple who had condoned it. And so it makes sense that in just a few minutes after he says they were teaching in the temple, that it points out that these very high priests and these scribes began to plot against him. It says in verse 47 and 48, the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. And though the chief priests and scribes Though they hoped to put an end to Jesus right there, there wasn't anything they could see to do in that moment, but there was something they could do in just a few days. They plotted, they put a plan together, and they decided that it was time to act against this Jesus. It was one thing for them to hear about him teaching in the synagogues, in the local places of worship. That was like the minor league, so they weren't really that offended by that. But once Jesus marched into the temple, into the headquarters of official Judaism and spoke the truth, now he was on their grounds. They, they saw him as crossing the line at that point, and they had to do something about it. He was threatening their authority. His very presence was threatening to upset the apple cart of conventional religiosity that had developed in Jerusalem. And so they decided that they would put him to death. Verse 49 
Jesus was ultimately executed because it was the only way to spare man from paying the true penalty of sin themselves. But turning over the tables in the temple courtyards was one of the key actions that set his crucifixion in motion. This is the beginning of the end for him. Because of this deed, you see the authorities that before were staying back and were cautious, now engaged in taking out Jesus and ending his life. Friends, Jesus gives us here an amazing example of righteous indignation spoken in love, but with authority and with truth. And I encourage you today that as we leave this passage of Scripture and we decide that we would like to put this into practice in our own lives, that you would keep this particular Scripture in front of your your eyes. Ephesians 4, verses 25 through 27 says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Looking at that passage of scripture that's on the screen right now, is it a sin to be angry? No. And Jesus was not sinning by being angry at these sinful Israelites. But it is sinful to let our emotion of anger lead us to do something that is sinful in a reactive way. And so we cannot afford to say, well, I'm just, that's just how I am. Sometimes I fly off the handle. You shouldn't provoke me. We can't afford to say things like that because God has called us to control our emotions so that whenever we say something, whenever we do something, we might feel one way or think one way, but the Holy Spirit has veto power over whatever we naturally are. That we might let the Lord God make us a person of peace even when we feel like being a person of punishment. God can do that in and through our lives. Look at Romans chapter 12, verses 19 through 20. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. And do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Friends, righteous indignation is a real thing. And there will be times when the the ugliness of this world is going to make you ashamed of even being a part of it. I pray that you are angry at sin. I pray that you are not comfortable with the way that mankind has so sullied the image of God that he built into us. But I also expect, brothers and sisters, as followers of Jesus Christ, that we would learn and train our hearts to respond to that godly anger in godly ways. Let us express ourselves in ways that dignify God rather than put him to shame. Would you please bow your heads as we close in a word of prayer. Thank you, Lord God, for all that you've done to make us yours. We appreciate the instruction of Scripture because naturally we don't do it like this. God, when we we get angry, typically that is the straw that breaks the camel's back and the floodgates are released and we just hurt, hurt, hurt because we feel like we've been hurt. But God, there is a different kind of anger, a different kind of of expression that can be given to the people of this world that can help them to see the seriousness of their sin. And I pray that you would give us the maturity to act like Christ would act. Father, we're going to leave the bulk of that up to you. Help us to be a person primarily of love and of grace and of patience, but help us to see that anger is not necessarily a sin if it's about the right things. You are a wonderful and a magnificent God, and we're so grateful, Lord, that the wrath that we have earned through our sin is no longer on us but that you have taken that wrath on yourself, Lord God. 
that Jesus paid the, the terrible penalty of death and sin on the cross. But we're also grateful for his resurrection and the promise that because of that defeat of our sin at the cross, Lord, that we will one day rise anew with you. We look forward to that day. In the meantime, God, let us give you glory in everything we do and say. In Jesus' name, amen.